Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I'm your host, Andy Sido. My guest today is Celeste Orio. She's been in the music industry for a long time as an artist, a manager, a booking agent. Um, she's sort of done it all, and she's been in the industry for a long time. We, we got to chat about the industry in the 90s versus how it is now. Um, she currently heads up Maple Street Music Agency, which serves as a manager and agent for the musicians on the roster, and a couple of her artists include Carrie Morin and Ray Bonneville. She also does marketing and consulting. Uh, some of her consulting services are overall marketing, CD release strategies, radio and print, media promotion, professional development, industry education. Uh, Celeste had a, a lot of really good things to say that I, I don't think are, are said enough. For instance, she talked about applying for grants. It's not something that's included in the all-inclusive musician handbook, I don't think. Um, when you talk to people in, indus in the industry, you hear a lot of the same things. I thought she brought up a lot of uh, really interesting things for artists to think about. So I'm trying not to be too long-winded in the monologue. And I'm just going to jump right into it. But this is an episode, definitely, if you're an independent artist, that is worth listening to. Uh, without further ado, let's jump into it. Let's go. <laughs> so where'd you uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Portland, Maine. Okay, that Portland, the one that I, I have not the been to. The other Portland, yeah, they call it. Yes. Is it a big place? Portland is um, actually about the size of Fort Collins, Colorado. So it's about I'm guessing 150 thousand ish. It is the biggest city in Maine. Okay. It's a harbor town. I grew up on the harbor. Down on the waterfront. Very nice. And what what did you uh did you grow up there your whole childhood or did you move around much? Um, uh, I I spent the bulk of my childhood there. We did move around quite a bit, but I would say that was the longest we stayed in any one place, probably ten, twelve years, something like that. What what did your folks do? My dad was a sculptor. Wow. He actually made his real money, if you can call it that. As a carpenter, uh -huh. he did a lot of restoration work. Portland in the 70s was kind of in a little bit of a boom, and being a really historic city, uh, the city started putting money into restoring buildings, and being that he was a sculptor, he had a lot of crossover talent for doing restoration work. He could apply his principles of sculptor, being a sculptor, to creating, you know, all those antique moldings and recreating the pieces and parts of those old structures that needed recreation. Nice. Yeah. He was a crazy man. <laughs> He's an old hippie. Nice. Very good. And when, uh, what happened after childhood? Did you, and were you, were you already into music at that point or? Um, you know, uh, I grew up around a lot of artists and a lot of musicians. Um, my father was very connected to the arts community in Portland uh, actually, Carrie and I went back a couple of years and reconnected with uh, a man that knew my dad who still owns a music store there called Buck Dancer's Choice. Wow. Um, Buck Dancer's Choice. Yeah, a bunch of old deadheads, you know. <laughs> like I said, they're all old hippies. 
So I was very connected to that. My dad, I was fortunate that my dad had a huge vinyl collection, huge. And everything from Italian opera to Josh White and Taj Mahal and Johnny Cash and the Rolling Stones. And uh, my mother was a huge Motown fan. So we had everything that came out of Motown always in our home. Music was a huge part of my upbringing. We weren't allowed to watch TV. My dad didn't believe really in TV. It wasn't the central focus of our living room. It was right. vinyl and stereo and sound, you know. So cool. when I was in um, junior high, I sang in the choir. I played a little bit of flute. Uh, I was always dancing, uh, taking dance classes and performing dance. Um, yeah. In high school, I joined a band, sang a little bit, and then... Uh, I moved on to Colorado pretty, I was 19 when I got here, and music was just big. You know, I started singing and hanging out with musicians, and the rest is history. Here I sit, still in the music business. Answering from. booking emails as we speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yes, it's been a big part of my life. So you've been here since you were 19? Yeah. Wow. Uh, right here in Fort Collins, or you move around a little bit? I had an aunt in Denver, and so I moved to Denver originally from Maine. Uh, and then I made my way up to Fort Collins. Fort Collins felt more comfortable to me than Denver. Yeah. Being from a smaller town, it right. was appealing. College town. Uh, so I moved up here. And over the years, I've come and gone. I, I left after I graduated college. In 90, I moved to New Orleans for a year. That took me from there to Guatemala. I, I lived in Guatemala for two years and taught school, and I also sang in a friend's club. Nice. And then I moved from there to Austin, where I lived for five years, uh, where my son was born. was very involved in the music scene there. Really? And then uh, my son's dad is from this area, so we ended up migrating back here. Gotcha. Gotcha. What was your involvement in the Austin music scene? Uh, my son's dad was is a musician, and so he started playing uh, in some bands there. I ended up singing in one of those bands for a while. Um, they were unknown at the time. They were called the Derailers, and they're still a, a band. They went on yeah. to, to do fairly well for a number of years, uh, but they kind of went retro country you know, with the suits and the flat tops and, and all of that. Right. Which really took them quite quite a ways, but, but there were two guys in that band who weren't really into it. So my son's dad was one of them, so they didn't continue on. But I sang with them a little bit. Um, I did some promo for that band. Yeah. Cool. What year was that about? That was, um, <clears throat> I want to say that was like... 91 to 96 and so in that time period what was what was pro what did promo entail i mean obviously a lot of the same stuff but different approach um well yeah i mean you know your computer was connected to a landline and if you didn't know dos very well it was kind of hard to yeah, right you know uh so it entailed you know calling people on the phone dialing them up yeah uh it it entailed, you know, printing posters and going around town and hanging them up and driving your cassette tape to the radio station. And, you know, it was that era, no cell phones really at right. that point. Um, 
no real internet yeah. to speak of. So yeah, marketing looked very different. So sen sending an actual hard press kit to the venue via right. snail mail. Yeah, you you put it all in an envelope and put stamps on it, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I I spoke with uh, David Dondero a couple weeks ago, and he was mentioning having to call the venue, send a tape, and then really having to call and follow up and see if they got it. And it's not like no, you can really just send that email, um, you know. And I guess people are getting bombarded with emails now, but. You know, it's easy to do a follow-up with somebody these days, I think. Yeah. The first band I was in here in Colorado is called Urban Renewal, and that was in the uh, mid-'80s, I guess. And um, I was a full-time student. I had a job, and I sang in this blues band. So I didn't do a whole lot of the marketing until I graduated, but but the lead guitar player, singer, you know, he, he went around and and talk to people he walked mm. into clubs and talked to them and uh, then when i graduated he said okay here you take on some of this and some of those clubs he couldn't get into i was able to get us into because i showed up personally as what they called them the chick singer god i hate that term but it made a difference yeah as misogynistic as that sounds my showing up made a difference yeah Mm -hmm. And where'd you, where were you in school at? I went to UNC. Okay, okay, right down the road. I, I commuted from Fort Collins. I wasn't willing to live in Greeley, so I commuted every no day. One, no one will blame you for that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I liked my home here. Yeah, yeah. And when, uh, when did you meet Carrie? I met Carrie back then. I met Carrie in the uh, probably around 84, 85, something like that. Yeah. Um through music yeah yeah and we um you know we were both married he was having children at that point i was not um and then many years later about eight years ago or so we found ourselves both single and bumped into one another and the rest is history yeah <laughs> so we've known one another a really long time a long time um i want to jump into uh your booking agency talk about that a little bit so Maple Street Music Agency is really sort of a boutique. We do a little bit of everything kind of agency. So yeah. I have Carrie <clears throat> as an artist. I manage, book, um, do a lot of his PR, radio promo, pretty much everything. And, and, and Maple Street kind of was born out of our partnership and doing all of that. Um, he toured with Putafe for many years up to that point um, and I got to know her really well and she was needing some somebody to help her so I took her on uh, so I do I do manage and passively book Potife but I don't actively book so I'm not sitting in front of a computer looking for gigs for her they just kind of come to us which is fortunate yeah uh, Ray Bonneville, I just manage. I do not book. He has a booking agent. So, um, so I do uh, CD releases. We, you know, we talked Ray into doing um, an independent release this last recording. So I did all of that. I facilitated all of that. Yeah. Everything from post production, meaning you know, getting the artwork together, figuring out 
who we were going to use to to um, distribute, um, finding the publicists, all of that. I did his radio PR. Mm. Um, so yeah, working with him, uh, he bought his albums back from Red House, so I re-released all eight of them. Awesome. Uh, plus the new one, but I do not book him. And so I'm trying to get away from booking, actually. I really like the management side, the big picture side, and yeah. looking to the future. And is, that what, is that what it is about management, that you like more about it than, than booking? Booking is a pain, you know. It's, it's yeah. like applying for 50, 75 jobs a day, you know. Right. It takes a lot of energy, um, and, and the returns are small, and... Uh, you know, I I would rather, as a manager, a lot of booking agents won't do things, for example, like I have a huge festival list, and I have it scheduled on my calendar when to start looking at festivals, depending on what year time of year they fall in. So I don't mind doing that kind of stuff. Um, I like working with festivals, but the day-to-day -day venue kind of booking, trying to route tours is very difficult. Right. Um, it's a conundrum because for artists who aren't yet at a place where they have enough business going on to attract a booking agent, they fall into this sort of chasm, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and it's disappointing to contact agent after agent only to have them tell you, no, I'm not interested. Not realizing that on the agent side of that, if I'm only getting 10 or 15% for every booking I do, if I'm booking a lot of $150 shows, for example, I'm making pennies per hour for my time. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of empathy for artists that are at that point uh, and, and would love to see them successful, but that's a lot to ask an agent to do. Right. Well, and, and what do you think it takes to attract an agent? What can an independent artist who is at that place that you're talking about do to help themselves get to the point that they're attracting an agent? Well, their calendar should be full. Yeah. Which that's part of that conundrum. <laughs> you know, how do I get a full calendar without an agent? Well, I got to work my butt off to get out there and uh, get my calendar full try and improve the um, kinds of venues and the amount of money that I'm commanding. And that requires that I have really great press. I have a great press kit. I have some great video, live video. I have, um, you know, posters and professional photos. I have developed my social media. So uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, YouTube, uh, they all look good. I've attracted subscribers to those fans. Um, yeah. It's a lot of work. But uh, to look as professional as you can on a limited budget, mm -hmm. which fortunately through technology is becoming easier to do. You, right. know, you, don't, you don't have to hire a camera crew to go out and get relatively decent live video of a show that you do. And so on a, on a limited budget, what do you think is the most important thing for an independent artist? Say you have um, $2,500 saved up to help your career somehow. How would you spend it? I would spend it on my press kit. Yeah. 
Um, I would make sure that I have decent live video, decent photos. Um, if I have some recordings, maybe you have an EP or a CD, some recordings, that you're going to spend that money mailing those off to radio stations, uh, starting to get airplay, at least regionally. Do you think that's still um, a relevant market is to be going at at uh, radio stations absolutely yeah i think that airplay is equally uh, as important as any kind of social media development that you can do um, people are listening to radio we love djs we we bow yeah. down to them <laughs> right because they're getting our music out to the world and that's critical yeah that's really it's not to be dismissed Right. So terrestrial radio play is still a very relevant thing today. Yeah. And you don't want to spend your limited amount of money on just sending them out to anybody. Uh, radio promotion is a, is a tricky deal. You need to do a lot of research. Make sure you're looking for the stations that are appropriate to what you're doing. Right. Uh, and then even drilling down into the particular shows on those stations that have DJs that are spinning the kind of music you're putting out. Yeah. Creating relationships with those people is really critical. So, for example, if I were going to do radio submissions for, say, Ray Bonneville. Okay. I know that Wyoming Public Radio out of Laramie has great shows that are very fitting for Ray's music. I'm going to call Grady Kirkpatrick, if that's who I need to talk to, mm. and say, tell me who are the best DJs and the best shows appropriate to this kind of music. And I'm going to create a relationship with that DJ. I'm going to send him that CD in the mail or give him a download. Uh, I'm going to send an email and say, hey, you know, Joe DJ, I just sent you Ray Bonneville's stuff. I think it fit great with your... Saturday Blues show, um, Ray Sounds Like, and then I list a few artists that this I already know this guy is interested in. Mm -hmm. um, give him three top tracks that fit that show to look at. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to follow up with an email a week or two later and say, hey, Joe, did you get that CD? Are you spinning it? What do you think? You yeah. know, thank you very much. So we're creating personal relationships. And I think in this business, that's so important. Right. Because because of technology, anybody can create music, right? You yeah. can sit right here with limited gear. We could write a song. Write a song and create a great recording. Yeah. How do you rise above that? Personal relationships. And that echoes back to the 80s where you got in your car and you drove to the venue and you <laughs> shook the guy's hand or the woman's hand, right? Sure, sure. It can't be dismissed. Uh, it's, you know, we're using different technology, but the relationship is still critical. Right. I think that's a great point is I, I think a lot of the best gigs I've gotten have been when we're on the road and there's a club I want to get into and we go in there, go up to the bar and order a shot and say, who books the shows here? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then once you get that show or you get that airplay or you get that press in the newspaper or the magazine or whatever, that you are circling back to that person and you are saying, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what can I do for that person? If Joe McSpadden is writing a 
article on Carrie Morin for No Depression Magazine, which is a great <laughs> thing. You yeah. know, that's great press. Yeah. I'm I'm promoting Joe McSpadden on my social media. Yeah. I'm giving him something back for his time and effort and graciousness in promoting my artists. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, we're talking about authentic relationships and emails and stuff and following up. There's certainly a, I would guess a high percentage of emails. I know there, I know there is for me that don't get responded to. Um, you send a hundred emails, you're not going to get a hundred responses. Is there something that, that you do to make it a greater chance of getting a response one and two, how many times uh, do you follow up with somebody before you say, you know, call it quits and let it be? Oh yeah, I'm in the thick of that right now. Trying, <laughs> <laughs> trying to route the Northeast right now for Carrie, and that's the question all the time. How hard do I push, and what what's the point of harassment where <laughs> you stop? So. I send the initial email out and I make sure that in that email I have links to Carrie's or whatever artist's latest and greatest stuff. Great video, great MP3s, uh, press quotes, direct links to those things. Um, you know, the biggest wow, the most recent biggest wow you can come up with about what, whatever it is you just did. I just opened for ACDC or whatever it is, you know, yeah. like, like keep your email succinct, put the dates you're looking for in the subject line. Right. Don't make your talent buyer dig for you. Don't send them a link to your website and say, Hey, check me out. Give everything you can write in that email in as succinct a manner as you can. Mm. Um, and then, you know, these guys are bombarded, right? Yeah. Guys and women and, and talent buyers, promoters are just bombarded with emails. So give them a few days, three, four, five days. Then resend that email, but not, don't just resend, reformat it, make it look just as good as it was the first time and do it again. Yeah. Do you mention that you're shooting a follow-up email? Hey, Sally, just shooting a follow-up. Right. Just yeah. want to follow up. These dates are still available. We'd love to speak with you. Mm. Um, when you, you know, always look at the venue's website and read. Don't dismiss the booking part of that. If you can find a booking instructions on a venue or a festival website, make sure you follow them. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like submitting a, a job application. If you don't follow the rules... Your resume is going in the trash, you know, because number one, you've just shown them that you can't follow instructions, right? Right. So if they say no phone calls, please do not call them. If there's nothing to indicate that they don't want a phone call, after an email or two, pick up the phone right. and call them. But if their website says don't call and you call them, you've just shot yourself in the foot. Right. So you got to do your research. Yeah. But yeah, um, there are buyers that want everything digitally. They don't want to talk to anybody. They're not interested in that. It's a don't call us, we'll call you kind of thing. There are still folks in the industry that like that phone call connection. 
They want to talk to people on the phone. Those are few and far between, but they do at times work. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, and along those lines, you'd mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about your festival list. Mm-hmm. How long in advance do you usually have to email a festival if you're hoping to get one of your artists on? You know, it used to be about six months. I would say nine to twelve now. Wow. I'm I am contacting festivals as far in advance as twelve months to find out that they've already booked the next year. Booked the next year. Wow. Yeah. So that uh, advance time is getting longer and longer because there's so much talent to choose from. So when I do festival bookings, I will now I'm starting to do them 10 to 12 months out initial emails, do an initial email, follow that up in a month or two. Yeah. Follow it up again in another month or two. Yeah. And all the while looking at those festivals to see where they're at in their process. If you can figure that out, you know, um, yeah. And do you have an app or something or, or boomerang that you use to know who you need to follow up with and when? My, I'm not a tech person. Yeah. So it, it takes me, you know, a lot to figure out what the best tools are and how to use them and all of that. So consequently, I make up my own process. Yeah. I've developed using the FileMaker Pro platform, my own database. Okay. And keep tweaking it through using a, a a friend of mine who is really good at it and I pay him to help me develop the next piece of it. Gotcha. Um, so it's my own system, but I have, you know, I might have 700 festivals in my database. 700. <clears throat> yeah. All over the world. And I can search that database by submission date or festival date, region, um, country, state, city, um, not yet genre, but I work, all my artists work in relatively the same genre, so I know most of my festivals are in the genre. I already want them. Right. Um, and then I calendar. You know, so I've done all my summer festival. I started that in October. Mm. Um, and then now I'm looking at um, submitting all the uh, uh, winter, spring festivals for next year already. So it's just on constant rotation. There's something every season to submit for. Oh yeah. And how did you get? Uh, how did you go about getting a database of 700 festivals? Was this just from googling and finding stuff, or uh, was there a list that you found online to start with, or what? What's your process there? All of those things. Yeah. So my peripherals are going all the time, whether I'm sitting in conversation with industry people or a bunch of musicians i'm always cataloging the conversation oh yeah did you play at that whatever festival last year oh you know the one up in montana and i'm like oh i didn't never heard of that yeah. so i'm taking notes right. all constantly if i'm on social media um you know i'm friends with lots of industry people and lots of musicians and i'm constantly looking at what they're doing if I see, you know, somebody's playing something that I've never heard of before, I save that. And when I have time, driving time, when we're touring, I'm adding that to my database. And over time, it's gotten huge. Yeah. So uh, 
Yeah, just constantly looking at what people are doing. I have 757 festivals right here, right now, and I'm constantly adding. I subscribe. I subscribe to Blues Matters. I subscribe to No Depression. I subscribe to the Americana website's mm -hmm. um, weekly emails. I subscribe to Folk Alley. I'm looking at, you know, I'm subscribing to everything. So when I wake up in the morning and look at my email, I'm scouring all of that. Just trying to add to it. Just trying to pick up tidbits here and there. That's what it's all wow. about. You know, I look at people's tour posters on Facebook. Like, say, Charlie Parr might be a somebody who's doing gigs, similar gigs to most of my artists. I'm like, right. oh, Charlie Parr's on tour. And I go down that poster and I go, oh, wow, he's playing at blah, blah, blah in Snoqualmie, Washington. I never heard of that place. Right. Well, if Charlie Parr's playing it, then maybe Ray Bonneville should be playing it. Right. Right. And kind of compiling it that way. Mm -hmm. And is that sort of how you approach touring a new market for some of your artists, too, if they haven't been to Washington yet, say? Yes. Well, yeah, it's, it's a multi-pronged approach. So I'm making sure that if my artist wants to tour in Washington, that that there are radio stations that have their music and are spinning it. Yeah. That'd be one thing. Right. Um, looking for any press opportunities in that area that I can get for that artist um, and looking for like artists in that area and where they're playing and, and then just using industry contacts too. And, and when I say industry, it's not, that it's not exclusive to just people that are on the industry side. Musicians should be looking at industry people too. Yeah. And seeing who they're booking or who they're managing and where those people are playing and um, attending any kinds of professional development opportunities or showcase opportunities. Yeah. So uh, if I want to get an artist really on their feet, say in northern on the northern pacific coast i'm going to look at the far west folk alliance conference that they do up there every year when people hear folk alliance they go oh folk i i don't fit that but folk alliance international caters to americana and folk and blues and world music and it's not genre specific to folk as most um organizations like that aren't anymore um, so I'm going to look at that and say, wow, can I get that guy a showcase there or that artist a showcase at Far West Folk Alliance? Yeah. That's going to put them on the map because those regional talent buyers come to that conference. Right. So then that speaks to the fact that as an artist, you have to have a little bit of capital to work with, right? Yeah. And that's hard to do when you're not making a lot of money. Again, another conundrum. I should be attending one professional conference a year minimally as an artist mm. to get my name out there, whether that's the IBC, the BMA, you know, Blues Music Awards, the International Blues Challenge, the Folk Alliance, the Americana Fest, APAP in New York. Where, where will I get the best bang for the money I have to invest in myself to get my butt to one of those right. places every year? Even if you're not, even if your artist doesn't get a showcase, you think it's still good to go down there and just shake some hands? Yeah. It depends on the event. Um, I would say Folk Alliance is the best bang for the buck if you are a roots-based artist. Yeah. 
because you can showcase unofficially, whereas is at Americana, you can't. You can right. only showcase officially. So yeah, where am I going to get the best bang for my buck? Um, but but I would encourage artists to be trying to stash away some money every year to do professional development. Right. Um, some of those conferences have first-time attendee scholarships. Uh, sometimes there's a little grant funding for things like that. Wow. There's an organization here in town. Well, the Mishawaka has the Mish Initiative, so Northern Colorado artists can apply for things like that. They're wow. small, small pockets of money. Colorado Creative does a $2,500 grant every year. Um, so those are the ways. I am tour uh, is another opportunity for artists. So, and and again, you know, sometimes you learn about those opportunities by going to those kinds of conferences. Um, grant funding is not to be taken lightly. There yeah. are some pockets of money out there, especially in Colorado, for touring artists. I, that had never even occurred to me. Grant funding. Free money. Yeah, well, yeah, heck yeah, I'll t I'd sign me up. <laughs> I think somebody got money um, from Mission Initiative last year to put t new tires on their touring vehicle. Wow. No yeah. kidding. Which yeah. is, when you think about it, it can cost you 800 bucks, you know, or whatever. That's a big expense. Mm -hmm. um, we got money to help us go to... Folk Alliance last year in Kansas City. It didn't cover the whole conference, but it went a long way in helping us get there and be there. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really cool. And you guys, I w it just made me think of lodging when you said when you went to Kansas City for Folk Alliance. You guys sort of have that part taken care of um, with with the RV out front. Is that right? We do. Um, we have become really good at urban camping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a skill. Um, but yeah, so if we go, say, to Kansas City for a week to do Folk Alliance, they have an outlying oversized vehicle parking lot. And so we walk the two, three blocks and we camp there for the entire time. Yeah. And then, you know, we know so many people there that, you know, we'll catch a shower here or there from somebody that's got a room, you know. Yeah. Charge the phones or computers or whatever if we need to do that. Um, so we, we've gotten gorilla at that. Um, right. And as, as well as other artists, they're doing that too. You know, if we can... Um, if we get a gig on a tour at a venue that has a safe place for us to park in the alley behind, you know, or whatever, we'll do that. So yeah. always looking for ways to make touring more financially viable. And the, I, I heard Walmart parking lots are a-okay to park in and sleep overnight too, if, if nothing else. They can be. <clears throat> Walmart will allow it if the city ordinances allow camping. So for example, Fort Collins. Yeah. There is no urban camping in Fort Collins. Okay. So Walmart can't let you camp in their parking lot overnight. So you need to kind of scope that out as you're touring. Yeah. We have done that. So there are um, travel apps that you can download to your phone and and they'll tell you where the camping spots are. And if Walmart allows camping, that'll pop up. But so yeah. yeah, some cities, just because city ordinance doesn't allow it, Walmart can't do it. But 
So it's totally gorilla. You're just, you're going to a new place. We're going to figure out where we can park this thing. And yep, and I will tell you that truck stop showers have gotten really high end. Like oh yeah, the flying jays and the big oh, yeah, pilots sure. and stuff. I mean, they're not they're not scuzzy. They're really nice. And for you know nine ten bucks, or you get their reward card and you get gas and you get points and you can get a free shower. Um, yeah, they're nice. You can do your laundry wow. there. Yeah. Um, How many months out of the year do you guys spend uh, traveling? You know, it, it has fluctuated in the last few years for a variety of reasons, but generally seven months to nine months on the road. Wow. Mm -hmm. So more time than you're, more time than you're here, for sure. Mm-hmm. Ideally, yeah. Yeah. Because if we're sitting here, we're bleeding money. We're not bringing it in. Not bringing it in. So that's really cool. That's I mean, you're you're out a lot of the year. I think that's the goal for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, it's we love it. Uh, uh, it's not easy. I'll say that. You know, I think people sort of fantasize about how um, what's the word I want. You sort of glorify what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it takes uh, a particular kind of person, you know, to have the kind of stamina it takes to be on the road constantly. And it's not like being at home. Right. You can't just open the fridge. You can't just hop in the shower. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. It looks glamorous. But it's, it, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It can be exhausting. It's it's important. You know, we don't drive 10 hours a day. We try not to drive at night. You know, the more you're on the road, the more of a chance, you know, more of a risk you're taking for for things to happen. You mm. know, driving at night, hitting a deer or being overtired or, you know, there yeah. are things to consider about that. It's grueling. And I would say the same about touring Europe. Um it sounds really glamorous. People always say, oh, you were in Paris. Did you go to the Louvre? Did you do the Eiffel Tower? Well, no. We were working. Yeah. <laughs> we had to figure out the taxi to the train station, to the plane, to the, you know, you're constantly, your brain is in motion. You're constantly on the move. And in addition to having to put on the best show you can, there's all this logistical stuff and being in the strange places. and Right. There's a lot to it. It's not like getting up, getting in your car, and driving to the office. <laughs> right, day. right. Coming sure. home at night and opening your fridge and cracking your beer and watching your favorite show. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the Carrie's more recent releases. First off, he's put something out pretty much every year lately, right? 15, yes. 16, 17, 18. Um, is that right? He's got done an album. Yeah, four. actually, I think in 2016, he did a re-release, A Young Ancients, and <laughs> he might have done three that year. Wow. But yeah, he puts something out every year. That's great. Trying to slow him down, but... Yeah, but you can't. I can't. <laughs> We're about to do another one here in a four weeks. Awesome. So... Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the, the album process after the album's been finished. Um what have you guys done on the last couple records? I know the fan bases increase significantly. The gigs are are getting greater and greater every time I look on Facebook. Um, 
and and so what's what's sort of the process for uh, marketing him when you talk about PR and things of that sort? Yeah, so the first mm, three or so releases, solo acoustic fingerstyle releases, we worked our, on our own. Yeah. Uh, once the CD was ready to go and we had a thousand copies on the doorstep, uh, I, Carrie and I together kind of pooled our resources and all the people we know and looked at what other folks were doing. And it was really important to get that album out to people who could do something with it before we re actually officially released it. Right. So trying to send it off to, um, radio stations and people that might write about it and uh and we did all of that on our own and we we did okay i mean i think streamline and tiny town and together all did for the amount of resource we had and the level of knowledge we were at did fairly well um and then when we got to to cradle to the grave uh, we had the great fortune of being able to operate on some grant funding yeah Carrie was awarded the first people's um, business and leadership fellowship with came, which came with some money and then the following year the Native Arts and Cultures Fund he was a fellow um, for a year there and that came with some money wow. to help specifically with these projects and so we moved to actually hiring a publicist on Cradle to the Grave for the first time. And that really helped. Somebody that's been in the industry for a long time and has all of those relationships with the um, magazines and, and people that we needed to be in front of. Yeah. Blues Matters, Blues Blast, um, No Depression, Americana, um, Elmore Magazine, Downbeat. Those publications are hard to get into mm -hmm. without, without the help of a publicist. So yeah. I would say that really helped make those numbers jump. Yeah. Uh, and and the, those are expensive services to afford. So without the grant funding... We would have had to borrow the money to do to do something like that, and then and then at one point we were able to jump to using a digital marketer in addition to our publicist, and a digital marketer looks at all of your social media and all the different platforms that you appear on and all the um, the metadata sites like Music Brains and All Music Group and to make sure that your music is in the places it needs to be on a meta level for, for DJs to access it um, and for you to get on uh, all those Roots reports and Billboard and all of those kinds of places. Mm. Um, so, you know, money is key, but the planning is really important. So before we had the money to put into that, I'm um, just knowing that if you're going to release a CD, you want to give it to people to whom it's going to matter for you before you announce a release date. So any people that are going to write about your music or air your music, push your music digitally, they, they want new, fresh stuff. And I see this happen a lot. 
people go, oh yeah, my CD just came back from Disc Makers or wherever I got it from, and uh, now I'm going to have a party. You know, I got it on Friday, and my party's going to be on next Friday. You skipped an important step. You skipped a huge step, because once you put that out as a released product, it becomes less appealing to print media people, to reviewers, to radio people. Sure. It's old news. Right. They want it before anybody else gets it. Yeah. So if you're going to release a CD, back up minimally two months, minimally two months, maybe four months, mm. and work that. If I'm ordering a thousand initial copies of my disc, I'm going to minimally use 300 of them for promotional purposes. Sure. Because you know what happens if I don't do that? I drive them around in the trunk of my car from show to show to show for what? A year, two years? Yeah. And then they're really stale. And and not a, there's not unlimited space under your bed, as I can attest to. Right. <laughs> so that's the step. It's the promotion of that before you ever even consider releasing it. And to promote it, it has to be a done, a finished product. Right. right. Um, and how about the decision to promote full-length albums as opposed to singles and short EPs in today's industry? You know, that's a great question, Andy, because um, we're so old school, I think. I keep thinking I'm old school because we keep doing full albums. And, I, and I'm starting to realize that I'm missing uh, a little bit of that opportunity to do one-offs. Um, and I think those in this day and age are really important. I think you can get a lot, uh, a lot of mileage out of dropping one song if you know where to drop it, mm. if you know how to drop it. Yeah. Same principles apply. You know, you, you want to get it out to people who matter. You want to make sure you get it up on Spotify and SoundCloud and all those places. And, right. um, Video is critical. I, you know, I'm starting to think that for every song you would put out on an album, you make a video for every it. single one. Every single one. Mm. People are so visual. You have to do visual along with sound these days if you want to maximize. And that, that can promotion. be something uh, cheaply put together for some of the songs too, like a simple lyric video or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Something for people to look at, to mm. grab their attention. Um, do a mashup of you playing a bunch of different shows, you know, and put your music behind it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to cost a lot of money. Um, it should be clean, relatively clean, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. But visuals are really important. So yeah, I think, um, we're moving toward, you know, one-offs, doing more. We've got a great song. We've got some great um, visuals. Let's put it together and get it out there. Yeah. You don't have to wait for a full album. Right. And that's the other thing, too, with social media and people's shortening, ever-shortening attention spans is you have to keep your social media going. You have to keep that buzz going um, and you don't want to let that lapse or you start losing people's attention and on the other side of that you don't want to drive your fan base crazy with needless stuff 
needless noise. Right. What I tell artists is if you have a lull in your touring schedule and you don't have a product to put out, do little shorts, Mm. you know, do some, you know, bring your crowd back in, noodle on your couch and put out, you know, maybe a one or two minute ditty or, um, in the absence of that, find the artists that you know and love and start sharing their stuff on your page. Because what happens is as exponential, it works exponentially. If I'm sharing um, Corey Harris's stuff, Corey Harris's fan base is all of a sudden starting to see my stuff. Mm. And they're similar, we're similar artists, so they might like my stuff right? and start paying attention to me as well. And I'm supporting Carrie, whom I love as an artist and I wanna see him be successful too. Yeah. So it's a good vibe, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to do and it keeps your content interesting when you're not really doing something yourself. Sure, I think that's great advice. Mm-hmm. Um, last thing I wanted to touch base on was uh it was spotify numbers we, just before we started recording we were talking about uh ray's spotify numbers and and carrie's spotify numbers what's what are some things that you've done to help grow that and, and keep that consistent and do you think that's uh played a big role in getting people out to shows as well oh yes spotify is for for whatever it is better or worse is is a big tool and um there are a lot of people using that platform and it's not to be ignored if you're an artist that has some numbers already on spotify and you have product out there projects um, you can register as a, a verified spotify artist and i highly recommend people look into that just google verified spotify artist and follow the process and see if you can get uh to be a verified artist and what what happens when you do that is you go into some algorithm in spotify and their their gurus behind the scenes are looking for numbers they're looking for numbers of hits on songs and once you reach a certain <clears throat> level of hits on a song they'll start incorporating you into their playlists so you're just again it's exponential you're getting out to more people but in lieu of that, even, you can create playlists on Spotify um, and share them out with your community. And not just of your own music, but include other mu- like musicians and people that you like too and start generating interest that way. Then you go back every month or two and you might add a few tunes to that, freshen it up and send it back out. Post it on Instagram, post it on Facebook, you know, post it on Twitter. It's that kind of energy that generates more fans yeah. and more plays on Spotify. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, Carrie had uh, When the Levee Breaks, which is a cover tune, right? on his Cradle to the Grave, I think is up to over 2 million hits now. So he... Wow. Yeah. It, unfortunately, that doesn't equate to a whole lot of money right but it equates to a whole lot of attention right spotify noticed as he started nearing or as he got over a half half million started picking up his music and putting it on their playlists Mm. and uh so yeah that's how you work that stuff and 
and you have to do it yourself unless you can hire a digital marketer. We had the great fortune of getting some help from a digital marketer who was working that stuff behind the scenes for us. And I learned a lot from him, so now I can go back and kind of do some of it myself. Do some of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, very cool. Well, I want to thank you so, so much for, for doing the show. This is jam-packed with great information. I know I'm going to go back and listen a couple more times and just try to turn the volume down when I'm speaking because I think that's weird to hear my own voice and turn <laughs> it back up so I can hear all the good information you've been giving. So thank you. Thank you, Andy. I, I appreciate it. It was fun. And, uh, you know, if you want to do it again, there's just no want for information about all this stuff. Gosh, there's so much. Yeah. I I. My heart goes out to artists who are doing this on their own. It's a lot of work. Might as well. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. All right. There you have it. Celeste, thanks for coming on the show. I sure appreciate it. And thanks for uh, all your insight and advice and knowledge. I hope some listeners get some cool things out of that. I know I did. I also interviewed her husband, Carrie Morin, which will be the next episode out in two weeks. I drove up to Fort Collins and was able to get two interviews in, um, back to back. So it was a nice uh, two birds with one stone sort of, sort of day. And uh, Celeste and Carrie spent a whole lot of time out on the road. I actually spoke with Carrie on the phone a little bit earlier this afternoon, and they're currently in New Orleans. Um, so keep an eye out for uh, Carrie Morin. He's all over the country, and the two of them, they're in the car. I think they said what, eight to nine months out of the year or something like that. So they're out on the road making it happen as independent artists. If you like this episode or didn't like this episode or whatever, feel free to shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com if you have any suggestions on future guests or anything that we could be doing differently. Mention that too. I want to say a quick thanks to our sponsor, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering out of Las Vegas, Nevada, puts the finishing touches on this podcast. For any of your audio or restoration needs, go to www.pqmastering.com for more information. All right, I think that's it. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. Thanks.